Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Assyrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Well, this is a brilliant story. In fact, this is about three brilliant stories. There is a lot going on in this passage. Uh, There is a lot of hope in this story, there is some very deep frustration and there's fear of what the future may hold here. But there is also in this a call to renewal, a call for God's people to return to God's. And this story comes in a, a long way into the history of God's people. Uh, and, and at the time that we find them, they were divided into two uh, kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And both have struggled since the kingdom had split, since they both had a slow loss of power, of influence, and of prestige. Now, if you were to have done last year's School of Theology, they went through kings, and Tom actually, I think, did that teaching. And in his notes, he has a list of all the kings of both kingdoms. And Tom, in a very Tom way, you score them, don't you, Tom? And what was the scoring? Very good, good, bad, really bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so uh, basically, uh, Israel, all of the kings were either bad or very bad. They didn't do well. And Judah, the majority of the kings were bad or very bad, with a few good ones thrown in here and there. Uh, Effectively, since the kingdom split under, uh, there was David, Solomon, then the next king, the kingdom was split into two. And their influence, their power, uh, their place in the world slowly declined. And they descended into idol worship. They rebelled against God and there was lots of sin and lots of chaos. Uh, And they ignored the law of God, the the instructions God had given them on how to live, how to worship him, how to be the people of God, how to represent God to all of the surrounding nations. They were ignoring that. And they were ignoring the very presence of God himself. Now, like we said, Judah had a few good kings. And they tried to restore the people back to God's. But Israel, there were none really. All of them led their people away from the living God into worshipping all these other gods. 
And in this uh, story of one and two kings, we, we have these two incredible prophets that appear. Uh, Elijah and, and the guy we've read about today, a guy called Elisha. Uh, and they called people back to worshipping gods. They worked miracles, they healed the sick, they fed the poor. Uh, really very, some very powerful prophetic moments, some real powerful moments of God's moving back in, the, in his people. And there was a desperation in them themselves for, for God's people to return to him for renewal. They were desperate for, for God's people to repent, to effectively say, okay, my life is facing this way, I realise that is wrong, and I'm going to direct my life back towards God's. I'm going to live out actually what I was made for by God. I'm going to live out my true purpose. I am going to be the image of God's in creation. I'm going to be his representative. That was what he had made Israel to be. These two, these two prophets were desperate to see that happen again. And yet, even in their very, very powerful ministry, these, these two are some of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. Uh, even in their very powerful ministry, actually, not very much changes. There are some glimmers of hope, in Judah particularly, with those few good kings. But really, it's a bit of a mess. It's chaos. And we are now kind of at the end of the, these prophets' ministry. Elijah is approaching death. He is coming to the end of his time, and they will soon disappear from the story. Um, and Elijah kind of is a bit of a representative of Elijah. And when he dies, quickly, these calls for renewal, for returning back to God's they fall silent. But in this story, we see Elisha's last call, I suppose, his, his last moments, his last call for God's people to return to him, last call for the restoring of relationship between the living gods and his chosen people. And that meant for the individuals in the story that they encountered, but also for the nation as well, that they would all restore, that return and actually, in this story, there isn't a great, there's not a great formula here. This, this, this equals this, and we're all fine. Actually, it's a very painful story if we read it. There is a desperation in this story in Elijah and almost a, a desperation in God himself as well. A desperation actually to know his people, desperation to look after his people, to love them, to be a father of the nation like he designed them to be. Uh, desperation to know their faithfulness to him. He is a faithful God. They are an unfaithful people. And he is desperate for that faithfulness and desperate for the renewal of their relationship. So how does he want his people renewed? We're talking about how the living God renews us. Well, how does he want his people to be renewed to him? Well, there's a few different ways that come out in this story. And the first one is he wants a renewed perspective so in these first few verses, we see Elisha is sick, and we see this king Joash approach him. And Joash has, in this whole story, he just says one thing, okay? He has one sentence in this whole story, and it actually tells us quite a lot about him. It tells us a lot about his, his personality, about what he was like as a king. Uh, all of these are important things that we learn from him. Uh, and we know that Joash does evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how he is described. And that meant he worshipped idols. He worshipped gods that were not the living gods. He is next in the long list, Tom's long list of bad kings, 
Joash is the next one. He worships the gods of the world. He worships gods made of stone, gods made of wood, and he leads Israel into this, into worshipping these idols. He promotes it. He encourages it. He's a church planter for false gods. This is what the guy is. He works hard at it. He looks to gods, actually, that are dead. He promotes gods that are blind. He promotes gods that are deaf, that are mute. They are not alive. They cannot see you. They cannot hear you. They cannot speak to you. They are not living. Those are his gods. And we see very little of his life, and he kind of appears here at the end of Elisha's life. And he is upset Okay, he's clearly upset and he is approaching Elisha and he is weeping. And he says, uh, he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, is he there because he's a bit sad? Is Elisha, he spent so much time with his good friend, Elisha. Is he sad that this guy is going to die? I suspect not. I suspect they didn't spend very much time together. Elisha, he calls him father and he also calls him chariot and horses or horsemen of Israel, which is an unusual name, isn't it? Father, you can kind of understand because of his position in, in Israel at the time, but calling him chariots and horsemen of Israel, that's an unusual name. Well, why call him this? Well, Joash is a short-term thinker. He's also a very selfish thinker. He is reflecting on the fact that Israel's military has been decimated by Syria that they are in a right mess. He is ignoring uh, Elisha's love for God. He's ignoring the call to return to God. He's ignoring the fact that Elisha looked after the poor, performed miracles, spoke prophetic words, pointed the nation of Israel back to God. All he's looking at is the help that Elisha could give him with the military. That's all he's thinking about. He's thinking about the next battle he must face, the the state of difficulty that they are in at the moment. That's why he calls him these things. But we are meant to see something different, okay, in this. This phrase is put in here to, to signify something to us. So when Elijah died, remember Elisha was before Eli. Elijah was before Elisha. So when Elijah died, Elisha calls him the same thing. He calls out to Elijah. He says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Okay, so there is a prophetic uh, understanding in this naming, in this language. And because at the point that Elijah died, well, he kind of didn't die. He was taken to heaven, taken to heaven on flaming horses and chariots. That's how it's described that took him away. Also, there's another story in Elisha's life uh, earlier on in 2 Kings um, where the Israel are under pressure again and he is standing with his servant and they're about to go into war again and they can see all of the enemy's forces and they can see their tiny small army and the servant is scared and Elisha just prays, oh Lord God, would you reveal to him what I can see? And then suddenly this servant can see all of these angelic horses and chariots and uh, this great power of God that is with Israel that only Elisha can see. All of these we're supposed to see here. And it is presented to us as two worldviews. There is Joash, faithless and selfish in his worldview, completely short-term, completely him-focused, my problems, my issues. And then there is Elisha's worldview, full of faith, 
seeing the work of God. His perspective was renewed. And Joash is needed renewing. And there is a call to renewal in perspective here, I think. Even a call to renewal in our imagination. What we allow ourselves to think about. To look at a situation and ask God, what do you see in this situation, not what I see? It's not complicated, actually. Even uh, this afternoon, I got an email about a church that is in some difficulty. And uh, my first thought was, gosh, what on earth can we do about that? But I was preaching this this evening, it popped into my head, well, I wonder what God sees about this situation. I wonder what he sees in that. It's not complicated, it just requires obedience to regularly actually ask God, what do you see? A few months ago, uh, we, had, uh, we have a, a prayer meeting about once a month on a Friday morning. Our, kind of our, our staff and some of our volunteers come together and we pray. And we were praying about a number of the different sites and we were praying about Fallowfields. And both Ian, who led worship this evening, and Tom had different pictures of what God wanted to do in Fallowfield. Really powerful pictures of the, of the, the geography, the local area. Uh, and it was very descriptive and prophetic and it helped us to pray. But if you actually walked down the street around Fallowfield, you'd see lots of pizza boxes. Uh, You might see a few students who are worse for the wear. You might see quite cheap housing, whatever you might see. But actually, in the prophetic, we see what God wants us to do. And for me, I think we have to remember that actually God speaks today. And that actually there is a call for our imagination to be renewed. So we say, God, what are you saying in this moment. When we look at a situation, we get our own gut reaction, but God, what do you see? And then there is a, a renewal in faith as well. So God renews our perspective, but he also renews faith. And we see this very strange story where Elisha convinces him, first of all, takes the bow and arrows to fire them, and then gets him to strike the arrows on the ground three times. And Joash has, has gone to the prophet. Okay, we, we have to acknowledge that he actually, he did that at the moment. And I think in that moment of desperation, perhaps he'd gone to his wooden and his stone gods and they'd not said anything because stones can't talk to you. Uh, and maybe he'd gone to his wooden gods and prayed and got the feeling that perhaps they weren't listening. Uh, and then he thought, okay, I'll go and talk to this Elijah guy, the, the guy that has healed people and done numbers of miracles. Uh, and he went and saw him. And there is, a, there is an acknowledgement there, even with the idol worshipper, that this God is real, that he's active. And Elijah gives him some instructions, but Joash is reaction to these instructions are very telling okay this is they are the reactions of someone who is very half-hearted you can almost sense his discomfort as this story goes and his embarrassment in how this story is playing out for him the situation he finds himself in with the prophet who's really pushing him to see what God wants to do and he is reacting with some embarrassment to it so he shoots this this arrow to symbolize great victory over the Syrians and in order to do that Elisha has to turn right open the window then he puts his hand on him it's really kind of walking him through it step by step because he is a clueless person who doesn't have any faith and then there comes the next prophetic action where he just says okay you can do this one just take some arrows and hit them on the ground okay he's not he's not hitting it for him or anything like that he's telling him what to do and Joash has to do this prophetic action on his own And he hits the ground three times. And you can almost see him slowly hitting it 
and then just stopping. He stops very, very quickly. He stops, it's kind of a bit embarrassing. I'm just a guy stood here hitting the ground with some arrows. I, I don't understand what's going on. I'm embarrassed. This is uncomfortable. And we're supposed to see here a desire for the easy life, a life without awkwardness and discomfort, a life without embarrassment, a life without having to push into what God calls us to. Uh, actually, having talked about Fallowfield earlier on, uh, I rem- the first, mm, I like to think it was the first year, but it might have been any number of years at the beginning of planting here, it was really quite difficult. It was not an easy thing. And uh, one of the worst parts was realising that I was as not as good as I thought I was. So you turn up and think, hey, everyone, I'm here to save you. Unfortunately, that's not true. That's not quite how it played out. And it was often uncomfortable and often embarrassing. I remember one time uh, we had a worship time in uh, the bar bar, as it was. And I remember the, just the, the water dripping from the ceiling onto the worship leader. That's it. And actually, you had to take a sideways step, and it just dripped on the floor. And there was like seven of us stood in a semicircle. I'm thinking... Oh, this is not cool. This is not cool. I hope none of my pastor friends ever hear about this because I look like I suck quite a lot. It was often very embarrassing. Not many people joined. Not many people got saved in those early years. And I remember actually after a year or two praying with someone who was outside of the church and they said, Tim, you want to see God move. You do. But you actually don't want to be uncomfortable. That's a, that's a thing to hear. I was Joash. I would like God to fight the battles. I believe that he can. So I'll go to the man of God, the person that looks like they talk to God, and perhaps he can talk God into doing that for me. But I would rather it not be difficult. Thank you very much. I'd rather it not be embarrassing. We can see that Israel needs a renewal of perspective, a renewal of imagination. What God do you see? Not what we see, what do you see, God? And a renewal of faith. To then say, okay, I will, I will step into that. I will push into what you want, God. And then Elisha dies. And the writer tells us two quick stories that hint at how the people of God will be renewed. How they'll be restored. And the first story shows us that they will be renewed by words and by presence. So Elisha dies, says they bury him. Uh, and uh, this little story tells us about the difficulty that Israel was in at the moment. It talks about bands of Moabites that used to invade the land. This, this is a nation with very porous borders. This is a nation where their military is hugely depleted. They can't even stop people just wandering in to nick stuff and enslave people. These were raiders stealing, killing, enslaving. The people of God are on their knees. They are in trouble. Their prophet is gone. His bones, most likely in a cave, okay? And there's almost a sense of, it's his bones. He's drifted from memory now. Perhaps even what he stood for has drifted from memory. And then there is this body that is thrown in a moment of panic. And the story reads like they were were burying someone. Perhaps it was a friend of theirs or a member of their family. They were burying this body. And and bodies um, to the Jewish people are unclean, dead bodies. So they were in a process of, this was a a very deep and powerful moment. uh, And they were also, uh, to touch it in the wrong way would make them ritually unclean. So they're being careful about that as well. And then panic comes. They're like, okay, it's another bunch of raiders. Are they going to come and steal our our property? Maybe 
our, our wives and children are in trouble. We need to, they're panicking. So what do they do? They just grab the body, making themselves unclean, and chuck it into a cave. And that body is a picture of God's people. A picture, in fact, of us without God's. Dead, unclean, completely hopeless. It's a picture of Israel at that time, in big trouble. But then this body, something pretty strange happens. You've got to acknowledge this as a story. It's pretty unusual. This body comes back to life. It hits the bones of Elisha, and the body comes back to life. Why is it revived? Well, this character, this individual, Elisha, he was, a, um, he was a source of life in Israel, one of the only sources of life at that time. As we've said, he, he healed the sick. In some cases, he prayed and the dead were raised. He had great miracles. He was a, a prophet. He also spoke the word of God. What he spoke actually was God speaking to the nation at the time. And he lived in the presence of God. He really heard the voice of God. He talked with God. It's a very powerful picture of this person. And that's what Elisha stood for. And the writer is saying, we need to get back to that. So this person who brings this body back to life, well, we need to get back to what he symbolized. We need to get back to the spoken word of God. We need to get back to the presence of God. That will bring us back to life. Actually, that will make us clean. It will bring us from being dead and filthy into being clean and pure. That's what it will do. It will bring hope to us as a people, as a nation, as individuals. We are renewed when we know God's words and when we seek his presence. That was the way back for God's people. That was the way back for Israel. It wasn't even a good king. Actually, it was seeking after God's, seeking after his presence. Perhaps that's you at the moment. You may feel distant from God, perhaps under pressure in life, perhaps there is difficulty, perhaps you've never approached God before, perhaps you've even walked away, perhaps you've given yourself to things that aren't of God's. You need the words and the presence of God's who will bring you back to life. Now Elisha's story actually is quite limited Actually, this story is very powerful, but actually it's quite a limited story. This body comes back to life. We don't know anything about who this bloke is or his reaction to suddenly coming back to life in a cave lying on some bones or anything like that. Elisha stays dead. He's just a pile of bones that eventually turn to dust. He stays in the grave, and he is soon forgotten in Israel. And his ministry, as powerful and as astounding as it was, even when he was dead actually made very little difference. People of God didn't return to him. The kings remained awful. They kept worshipping other gods. They perfected new ways of worshipping other gods. But actually, this very limited story points us to the unlimited story of Jesus. So Jesus is the prophet, but he's also the king, and he's also God. Jesus is himself the word's and the presence of God's. And when Jesus goes into the grave, he didn't turn into bones like Elisha. Actually, he walked out of the grave. He beat the grave. And when we go to Jesus, the crucified, murdered Jesus, the resurrected, back-to-life Jesus, 
He brings us to life. We are that dead body. He cleans us. He gives us hope. Because actually, Jesus completely beats death. Elisha gives us a little hint of actually how death will be defeated, how evil will be destroyed. And actually, he points us to Jesus. He points us to the living God. He is the way, actually, that we are restored and renewed. And then there is this second just last story that actually is even more startling than the, uh, the bones that bring you back to life story. And we'll finish with it. As we are renewed by the word and presence of God, but we are renewed by his compassion to us. It talks about how the king of Syria was oppressing them, uh, Israel. He was invading as well. He was making their life very difficult. And regardless of all the sin of Israel, regardless of the fact that they were worshipping other gods, that they were actively and consistently ignoring what the living God had told them, how he wanted to relate to them, this living God still intervenes, even though they have run from him. God still delivers for them. And he doesn't look at their behaviour at this moment. He looks at his promise. He remembers the promises he made uh, to many generations before, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, who promises that he would not destroy them. And he remembers those promises and he is compassionate. He cares for them. He is merciful and he turns towards them. He doesn't look at what they are now because they are like the dead body. They are hopeless and they are dirty. He looks at the promises that he has made and says, yeah, I will turn to these people. So we need this as well. Our city, actually, Manchester, needs God to turn and look at us with compassion, don't we? Perhaps even this evening you think, I need to be renewed. I feel that in myself. I need to turn back to God's. Maybe it's a situation in life. Maybe something's going on, whatever it might be, and you think, God, please renew that situation. Please restore me in this. Please help me. Or perhaps you look at our city. Perhaps you look at some of the different things going on, the poverty, the running from God, the idolatry, the worship of things that aren't the living gods that happen in Manchester. And you think, oh, we need a renewal. We do, absolutely need to. And the good news of this is that God agrees with you. And the good news is that God is compassionate and remembers his promises. The living God turns towards us. When he sent his son, that was the ultimate turning towards us. He remains looking at you. He has not turned his back on you. He turns towards you.